Today's sermon text is Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Karen. Um, Two weeks from today, we are going to be taking a few minutes in our Sunday morning gathering and having a time where we baptize people, people who have experienced the grace of God in their hearts, people who have come to new faith, people who thought, some of which thought that for a long, long time that they were, quote, in the kingdom. And they realized that for a long, long time, they thought that, that their hearts had never been brought alive to the gospel and to Jesus. And so uh, I'm just inviting anyone here who has never been water baptized. Uh, We're going to have a big metal trough on stage. It's going to be assaulting to your senses. Uh, But it's going to be a time when we as believers come together and uh, baptize and witness the baptism of brothers and sisters in Jesus. Did you know that the first response of faith in the Bible is not necessarily praying the sinner's prayer, but it is water baptism? It is admitting that I belong to Jesus and that Jesus has swept me up in his life. And my response to that is to do something that's more than symbolic, that is supernatural and mysterious and is testimonial in being baptized into waters that represent his grave and also the grave of my old man and my sin and being resurrected into the newness of life in Christ Jesus. If that's you and you desire to be baptized, or let me put it this way, to fully and completely identify with Jesus... I invite you to simply walk out that back door when the service is over, or anytime really, and go to the information center and sign up on that iPad out there. We will be happy to baptize you that day, and we'll be in touch about any details as far as attire and towels and all that kind of stuff. So it is going to be an awesome, awesome time we're going to have two weeks from today. Uh, today marks the beginning of about, a, uh, about an eight-week series that we're going to be doing on the book of Philippians. And the name of this series is pretty upfront. We want you to know that living is Christ. Anything short of Christ is not living. Anything short of that. 
We live in a pragmatic culture that seeks to turn God into a resource for our betterment, a tool to advance our happiness, our sense of belonging or meaning, when really we've got it backwards. We exist for God's plan for the whole earth. And if we don't get that right, then we get everything else wrong. To live is Christ. And so we're going to be getting into Philippians chapter 1 today. Uh, Several of our other preachers here are going to be joining me over the next few weeks in teaching this series. And we are really, really excited about getting into God's Word this morning. Um, I love the way that this letter is framed because the first 11 verses of Philippians frames everything that Paul wants to say through those four chapters. Philippians is only four chapters. But those first 11 verses are an outline of what Paul wants to say to each of us as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I love the things that he begins to say in this letter. He says stuff like this. Karen just read it, but maybe, maybe you missed it. He says, grace and peace to each of you. Grace and peace. He says, I often think of you. I often think of you. You ever had a preacher tell you that? I often think of you. What if your pastor said to you, I thank God for you every single time I pray? Every single time. And what's clear in the book of Philippians, he's not just talking about the church in general. He's talking about the specific individuals who make up this church. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote the majority of our New Testament. A man who had a furious teaching schedule and travel schedule. And this man was never too busy to with his full heart emotionally engage the people that he led to Christ and discipled and to continue to intercede for them in the Spirit. What if you had a friend who said those things to you? William, I think about you so much. Francisco, every single time I pray, I pray for you. Your name is mentioned by my lips to our great God. What if he said that? What if somebody in your life said that? What if somebody in your life said that I feel joy each time you're in my head? Every time your name runs through my mind, I feel joy. You make me happy. You make me happy. What if a dear friend or a sister in Christ, a community group leader, said these words to you? looked you in the eye and said these words. Would this be too uncomfortable to hear? Because this is what Paul says to these people. He says, I I hold you in my heart. This is the Apostle Paul who 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 is unfairly treated by many people in that he's stoic or harsh or severe. This is a man who is saying to these precious, nameless, faceless people that we won't even know who they are when we see them in the New Jerusalem in heaven. And he says this, I hold you in my heart. 
And he says this, I'm not embarrassed that I feel this way about you because it's right. He says with absoluteness, it's right that I think this way about you. What if a friend walked up to you in this church and said, hey man, I just want you to know, I hold you in my heart. How many of us would respond with maybe uncomfortable sarcasm? How many of us would be looking to hit the eject button? I've got to hit the restroom, man. Thank you for holding me in your heart. <laughs> Paul says this to these people. Paul, this full-hearted, wonderful man of God. He says this, I hold you in my heart. And I'm not embarrassed that I feel this way about you. In this introduction alone, this should step on all of our toes and cause us to question entirely the way we approach church. Because the truth is, is that we are so full of pride and insecurity that I'm not sure we could handle a relationship like this. It's too invasive. It's too uncomfortable. It's scary because there's not like it's just a relationship where there's conversation that's, you know, superficial, surfacey. I can, you know, swim in those waters, no big deal. But every single time we're together, we're going deep. And that's tiring to go deep. I'm not suggesting that you can't have fun, you can't use the literary uh, uh, mechanisms of sarcasm and hyperbole and things like that. That's not what I'm saying, and I don't think that's what the Bible's saying here. But the depth of Paul's emotional attachment to these people should cause us to ask ourselves the question, do we have the ability, are we even interested in cultivating these kinds of connections with people around us? This messes with me, and I hope it messes with you. He says, you're going to make it. God is not going to let you falter. We need people like that in our lives, don't we? Somebody to come put their arms around us and say, hey, you are going to make it. God is not going to let you falter. He's not going to. Why do I know that? Because I hold you in my heart. You're dear to me. I'm going to walk with you. That's why Paul's writing a letter from a jail cell, starving. Ancient prisons didn't give you three square meals a day. The only time you ate was when your friends sent money to you so that you could, so your other friends there could go buy you food and feed you in jail. Paul is writing from a jail cell, and he's saying that when I'm praying, I'm not begging God to get me out of here. As a matter of fact, he's going to say later that this is all for God's glory. From a jail cell, Paul is saying, every single time I pray, I'm saying, your name. Your name. You're going to make it. What do you think that he'd be thinking about himself? Like, Keep helping me. I need to make it. Help me make it. Paul's worried about them. He says, I yearn to be with you the same way Jesus yearns to be with me. Do you have relationships like that? I yearn to be with you the same way Jesus yearns to be with me. I yearn for this. I want you to experience, Paul says, my paraphrase, of course, 
I want you to experience this kind of love with more and more friends in the church. I want you to know this. This is what Paul is writing them for. Because he wants them to know in their disunity and their frazzled relationships the grace of God, the love of God. One, my, the coffee that I chose to drink from this morning was called Rift Valley. Rift Valley. And I made a joke that, you know, we should call our marriage ministry that. If you're in Rift Valley, let us, let it, let us work on it. I thought it was kind of funny. Anyway, so um, this church was in Rift Valley. This church was struggling. Founding members of the church couldn't stand to be in the same room with each other. And Paul's writing them from our prison cell and he's saying, I yearn to be with you with the yearning of Jesus. And my prayer for you is that you would yearn to be with each other with my yearning and the yearning of Jesus. This is incredible. What if you had a friend who told you that, who said those words to you? Better yet, what if you changed your view on Christian maturity away from the central piece being a good boy or a good girl, no longer doing bad things, whatever your top ten list of sins is, and you move to number one, not that those things aren't important, but you move to number one that the central and primary definition of Christian maturity is this, loving people well in tough times. Loving people well. Maintaining a heart tenderness when your actions are assaulting me. This is what Paul's going for here. He calls these people saints. And I love the way he starts off in verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. He says, servants of Christ Jesus. The word there is actually slaves. But the translators thought the word slave was so irredeemably broken in our culture because of African slavery that they chose to use the word servant so we wouldn't, we wouldn't trip up on that. But that's the word there, slavery. He calls himself slaves. When he's in prison, he's saying, I'm a slave of Christ. I'm here because I belong to Christ. He says this, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So he's writing the entire church, the leaders of the church. And he says, This letter is coming from me and Timothy to all of you. And what I love about this beginning of the letter is Paul and Timothy are living in community together. And they are writing to a community of believers. You should be able to see your pastors and your preachers living in community. I was so disappointed to hear a few weeks ago of a sort of famous pastor in the Midwest who was fired from the church that he founded 14 years ago. Several thousand members. He's a known leader in some sectors of the Christian community. He was fired by his church leaders after multiple warnings of egocentrism in his leadership, pride, um, manipulation, dealing harshly with others, uh, creating a culture that was toxic in his church. And then when push came to shove and the, it came out that he had had a couple of text exchanges, inappropriate text exchanges with a couple of women in his church, he was let go by his church. 
Right now, this man, his wife, and his children are experiencing the devastation of their identity being stripped from them. And I know a couple of guys that were pastors in this church, and they said to me, I asked them, I said, were you surprised by this? And they said, not at all. And you know what? The first thing that came out of both of their mouths in separate conversations was this, because he lived in isolation. He was always alone. He was always alone, which meant nobody was there to check him on his sin. Nobody was there. If you want to be a good friend, you've got to have friends. Because only your friends can show you how you're being a bad friend. Only your friends can teach you how to be a bad friend. You don't necessarily need a preacher to learn how to be good friends. You need a friend. And when the friend says, hey, this hurts, justifiably or unjustifiably so, you need to listen. Search your heart. They may be wrong, but you've got to search your heart. So many people live in isolation. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of our New Testament, and he's writing with community. Me and Timothy are writing to you. We're writing to you. This is one of the reasons why at our church, our vision is that multiple pastors would be leading us. Not just one pastor, but multiple pastors. And what I mean by multiple pastors is not that there's one guy who gets to do all the Sunday morning preaching reps and then the other pastors do all the grunt work, all the hospital calls, all the counseling appointments. Well, I get to read my Bible and get ready to preach. When I say multiple pastors leading our church, I'm talking about multiple preachers who get regular reps up here because Chris Bennett is way imperfect. Chris Bennett's view of the scriptures is very limited. But when multiple pastors are preaching God's word, we get more of a full counsel of God's will in our lives. We should be going for this. This was typical in the ancient church. Typical. And he calls them saints. He calls them saints. How does he know to call them saints? Well, one, they've come to faith in Jesus. When they repented of their sins and they were water baptized, what they were saying was is that we identify with Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our master. We too, Paul and Timothy, are slaves of Jesus. Now, I don't want you to hear the word slave in terms of the middle passage across the Atlantic. That's not what Paul means by that. Uh, we're, um, our goal is to do a teaching further down, maybe this year, but where we answer some of the difficult questions in the Bible, like the appearance that the New Testament affirms and upholds slavery. That's not true. That's not true. I don't have time to deal with that now, but we are going to address some of those issues that are stumbling blocks for some of you and also for some of your non-believing friends. But when you hear the word slave in this text, don't think of somebody who's being beaten by a master. Think of someone who is totally sold out to someone else, Jesus, and Jesus has his way with this person. This person is swept up in Jesus. This person, when he or she came to Christ, walked into the life of Jesus and disappeared. That's what we're talking about here. He says these people are saints. They've also become slaves of Jesus. One of the ways that we know that, they, that Paul could look at them and look at them in the eye and say, you are saints, was because they were partners with him, it says in verses 2 through 4 partners with him in the gospel. This church at Philippi was poor, yet they were the biggest financial supporters of the Apostle Paul's ministry. They were constantly sending him offerings. 
As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that Paul writes this letter is because they sent another offering to Paul through one of their church leaders, a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras fell deathly ill on his way there. Paul was writing back to say, hey, your pastor is alive and he's recovering. Things are going to be okay. Paul in prison did not want these people to be distressed about their sick and dying pastor. So from a prison cell where he was certainly being mistreated, from a prison cell where he was probably very hungry often, from a prison cell where he had dropped a few LBs, in a prison cell where he was dirty and filthy, in a prison cell, he writes them to say, hey guys, I want to encourage you. Your pastor is going to be okay and I want you to be okay because you are in my heart, you're in my mind every single time I pray. What Paul is demonstrating here is the kind of faith that we should all see as legitimate evidence of the work of Jesus in our lives. This is what Paul is talking about. This is why Paul mostly said to every church more than anything else, even more than specifically preaching the gospel, Paul said, the thing that I told every church was this, imitate me. Copy me. Watch me and do what I do if you don't know what serving Jesus looks like. Paul's demonstrating for us right here. In the middle of my toxic pain, my heart is yearning for community with loved ones in the faith and to serve loved ones in the faith. Wow. Jesus, my prayer. I'm not ending. My prayer is that every one of us, every one of us, that this would be our prayer. God, I pray that every person here, this would be our prayer. I pray that you would wash our minds in such a way that every single one of us would see Christian maturity by reflex as being this kind of life. God, let that be our way of thinking, our way of living. He says, grace to you, peace from God our Father. I remember you often. Look down at verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. And he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The Savior who swept up your heart, he is going to finish the work that he started in you. I know there are things about your life that you hate. Jesus is going to finish the work. What is he suggesting here? That this thing called change is a lifelong journey. It is not a suddenly experience at an invitation at the end of a service. I'm not saying that there aren't immediate changes that take place in our life throughout our lives. What I'm saying is that the theology, the teaching that the Bible puts forth on the subject of change is that change is a process. And embedded in that process, change equals worship. I worship. Pushing into God. 
Identifying with Jesus is worship. And as I do that, my hunger for things that were evil and ungodly turns into a hunger for things that are righteous and good and pure. And I change over my lifetime. And there's going to be a day when Jesus returns, the day that Paul references here, the day of Jesus Christ, where Jesus will return and I will still be unfinished. And at that point, at that point, Jesus will completely transform us all who believe in him. He will make us perfect forever. Of course, this brings up the question, why work so hard at trying to change now if Jesus is going to fix me at the end? Why? To be clear, I am not saying that the work of change is saving yourselves. Paul here is talking to people who are saints. They've come to faith in Jesus, and so Jesus justified them. In the eyes of God, they are innocent, and they will forever be innocent. We're not talking about about doing something to keep us from being judged or going to hell. But we are talking about the righteous and right response of every person who comes to faith in Jesus we begin to worship Him by responding to that work of grace by obeying Him. Obeying Him. We do what He says because He's our Master and we are His slaves. We obey Him. And I do want to say this, and I want to say this, and I want to, this is a sobering statement. I'm not going to pull any punches here. But you need to hear this, American Christians. If you are asking yourself that question, what's the point of trying to get better if Jesus is just going to fix me at the end anyway? That question may betray that you may not know Jesus. Because here's what happens when you walk into a relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit enters into your life. And the scriptures teach us that when the Spirit enters us, He stirs affections for Jesus, where we begin to love the things that God loves. And if that is happening to you, then the question is not, what's the point of being good? Your response as a born-again person will be this, Good and righteousness are beautiful and I want those things in my life. I want them. Let me tease this out just a second here. This last week I was meeting with uh, my, my friends. I'm part of a pastor's cohort that gets together every, uh, every two or three months. I, I mean, I've, told, I've told you about this if you've been here more than a few months. It is, uh, it is an incredible blessing to be a part of this group. We get together every few months and we go to a city. This last time we were in D.C. and Philadelphia. And, uh, and me and six other pastors hang out together. And our leader, a guy named Elliot Grudem, uh, facilitates a time of teaching. And um, just heart renewal that so many, pa- so many pastors need. It's been just a breath of fresh air for me. It's been, I feel like I'm becoming a better pastor because of this group. And so I, I, I can't tell you how desperately this group has blessed me and how much I need it. But while we were there, 
Um, remember that, remember that uh, diagram I put up a few weeks ago, Family Mountain? Hey, you start off on Awesome Hill, then what happens after Awesome Hill? Crappy Valley. Yeah. We hit Crappy Valley this last time together. It was, it was a tough trip. It was an awesome trip, but it was a tough trip. And I found myself in conflict with one of the guys who's become very dear to me. And we were able to work through it on the trip, but it required me repenting to him. I wronged him. I wronged him. I did not want to repent. With everything in me, I did not want to repent because I felt like there were some things about himself he wasn't seeing and it would have been easier for me to repent if he would have repented first. And, but that didn't happen that way. And I don't know about you, but it almost never happens that way. You know, don't you wish it always happened that way, but it almost never does. And so I repented to this brother, very heartfelt. And as I began to reflect on my own sin, I began to see the things that I thought were really big and blind spots in his life were so small. And maybe, maybe I was wrong about those things. Now, let me be clear here. When I realized that I needed to repent, it was not beautiful to me. It hurt. It, was, it did a number on my pride. But I will say this. The reason that I did it by the grace of God was because of what happened as a result of the repentance. Our relationship is stronger now. We've got a history together where we've been through tough times. I've got more assurance that we can go through more tough times together. Something beautiful has emerged. I don't feel regret for one second for repenting. If I could just encourage all of you, be quick to repent. Own your sin. Own it. The person that you're doing relationship with, as hard as it is and torturous as it feels, Look at that person in the eye and humbly, without excuse, just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please do that. Please do that. That is more of a mark of Christian maturity than feeling God's presence in a worship service, than having an awesome prayer life. That's what following Jesus, that's the fruit of, of following Jesus. That's what it looks like, part of it. That's part of it. Say you're sorry. Repent. Drop your guard. Humble yourself. Make yourself small and lowly. Because when you do that, you're copying Jesus who made himself small and lowly on a cross as he, hugged, as he hung there naked and was tortured. He was tortured. Changes a lifelong journey. Changes lifelong. Paul yearned for these people. He had affection for these people. He had a basis for his belief. They were partners with him. He was so intimate with them that he knew their hearts and he knew that they loved him and he loved them. Let me ask you something. Can you speak that way about your relationship with followers of Jesus? When you're with other followers of Jesus, does your heart come alive? Or does your heart more come alive with people who don't seem to know Jesus? That's one way you can figure out, am I really in the kingdom or not? Paul told the Corinthians that. 
He said, think about yourself. Figure out if you're actually in the kingdom or not. You need to think about this. Does your heart come alive around Jesus, people? Or are you looking for an exit? That may be evidence. And I know this is sobering. I know it is. And I know this is, may not cause you to go, wow, I can't wait for part two of Philippians next week. But if I don't say these things, that I am not doing you justice and I am not going to stand before God and he say, man, why didn't, you, why didn't you tease out that clear implication in the scripture? Why? Are you afraid? Are you trying to build a big church? And that's why I'm asking you, maybe if you're right now, you're realizing, oh my gosh, I may not be in the faith. That's a good place to be. Because if you can say that about yourself, that's as authentic as you can get. And maybe your response needs to be, I need to make Jesus, allow Jesus to be my master and follow him. And you should get baptized. Please understand, our goal on the 22nd is not to have 40 or 50 people up here getting baptized. So it makes our church look good. If there's two people, that's fine with me. It'll be worth filling that tank up, trying to get it warm, and administrating all the stuff around that. But I'm going to tell you, if you right now are realizing through this text that maybe, just maybe, you're not really in the faith, you need to consider joining us. Jumping in. Jump in. Just fill out that baptismal form. That's all you've got to do. That's all you've got to do. Paul, I'm going to go ahead and jump to the end. In verse 7, I'm going to read from verses 7 through 11 and tell you three things. Paul says this, It's right for me to feel this way about you all. It's right for me to feel this way. I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of the grace of God, both in my imprisonment and the defense, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all. I yearn for you all. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love... Now, right here, these last several verses of this section, this frames the entire book of Philippians. What is it that Paul wants to happen in the Philippians' lives? What is it? I'm going to give you three things, so be ready. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and, to be, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's that day of Christ again. That's a big theme in the book of Philippians. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul repeatedly says, I'm praying for you. You're always in my prayers, in my mind, in my heart. I yearn for you. And this is what I'm telling God about you when I pray. And guys, this is what God wants from us. For us, I should say. Check it out. Verse 1. or Number 1. This is what Paul's prayer is. You should try to remember this. This is really good stuff. Maybe even write it down. Maybe even put it in your phone. But do something to remember. Okay. 1. Paul's prayer is that we would, def- we would define Christian maturity as loving one another skillfully. Skillfully. 
in all of the Apostle Paul's writings, he always takes the idea of knowledge and love and puts them together. And that used to always confuse me. Because I never thought of love as something that happened up here. I just thought of love as a feeling. But he marries them both. And then I realized something. That the Apostle Paul routinely marries knowledge and love in his writing. And the reason why he did this was because it is impossible in the Christian faith to have loveless morality. It is impossible. It is impossible to have a Christian ethic that is without love because Christ is love. And for so long, there are so many people in our culture, in our society, who've been beat over the head with loveless Christianity. They've been told what to do. They've been judged harshly when they've not done it right. And they've never known what it's like to be in a safe place where they can be loved and known and a safe place where they can change. Where righteousness and holiness are beautiful to them. Beautiful to them. There's this uh, quote. I'm going to go back up to the beginning of my notes, guys. Back there working the uh, screens. There's a um, quote that I love by a guy named named, uh, David G. Benner. He wrote a book called Sacred Companions. And I want to read this quote to you from his book. He says this, Accompanying others in a relationship of spiritual friendship allows us to share things that may have never been shared as fully with any other human being. Some people may share moments of epiphany and ecstasy as they encounter the divine. Others, though, may share agonizing doubt and despair as they encounter a glass ceiling that seems to block them from contact with their God. Both are equally sacred experiences. Do I need to read that again? Should I? Okay. Accompanying others, us being with others in a relationship of spiritual friendship allows us to share things that may have never been shared as fully with any other human being. You don't just get there in 30 or 40 seconds. Sermons don't make this happen. We've got together to partner in the gospel like the Philippians did with Paul and make this culture happen here. All of you bear responsibility for this culture that I'm trying to push. It allows people to share things that may have never been shared as fully with any other human being. Some people may share moments of epiphany and ecstasy as they encounter the divine. Others may share agonizing doubts, doubt and despair as they encounter a glass ceiling that seems to block them from contact with their God. Both are equally sacred experiences. What's that mean? It means, man, that quit trying to fix people. Just be with them. Get comfortable with awkward lament. One of the great things that being a pastor has taught me, especially in the early years when I was called upon to go to the hospital and someone was literally about to pass away or had passed away, 
there was no hope. I hated those hospital calls. Not because I didn't want to go and help, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I felt so much pressure to make that person feel peace and joy, and I couldn't do that. I had nothing. It's much easier going to the hospital when somebody just had a procedure done. They're recovering. You know, they've got some hope. They know that their life isn't on the line. It's much easier doing that. You can go clown around, joke, lift their spirits. I can do that. But in that situation, I have nothing. Nothing. And what being a pastor taught me doing that over and over and over again was I got really, really comfortable leaving hospital rooms that were hopeless. Now, I didn't like it, and I don't like it now. But I've become very comfortable in simply walking in, grabbing a hand, and just sitting there. Just being there. Just being there. The change that people want so bad only comes, I think, in the context of that relationship. Well, there's safety. Look at the safety that they felt with each other, Paul and these Philippians. Safety. So the first thing God wants is that they would mature, that they would define Christian maturity as loving one another skillfully. Skillfully. Authentic maturity in Christ, my friends, is to set our sights on and grow in a love fluency with one another that is characterized by humility and tenderness. That's what Christian maturity looks like. It's love or bust. Nothing else. Love or bust. Second thing. Paul prays that our love would lead to keen moral discernment. For those of you that are like, oh, this is really heavy, love heavy. Where's the, where's the morality, Chris? You know, you getting, uh, uh, you getting liberal here? No, I'm not. I'm just being biblical. It's about love and love being the foundation and the foundation of love that it would lead to moral discernment. They lived in a time just like we do today where moral issues are really blurred and it's hard to see the right thing to do sometimes. Let me just give you a couple of things. This is low-hanging fruit here. How about sexual ethics? And I'm not talking about the SCOTUS decision last summer, although that is certainly a murky issue. But I'm talking about you, where you are and your sexual ethic. Because in the church, it is easily to be sexually promiscuous and have no conscience about that. Why? Because everybody does it. How many people have friends that chew them out for sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to know. <laughs> Do you, are you living promiscuously? Are you the kind of person that gets engaged? You're like, man, we're going to have sex because, hey, we're going to do it anyway if we get married. And that betrays an understanding that you have of sexuality, that it's all about you. It's not about God. It's not about an offering that we give to Him. And it's not about a sacred blessing that He gives to us. What about people who are struggling with porn? There are many. I'm not crazy. I know the statistics. There are many, 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 many people in this room who are struggling with porn. What about that? When are you ever going to confess that to somebody? To me, to a pastor, 
When? When? My friends, we love you. We care for you. We want to help bandage you and build you up. What about that? When are you going to face this in your life? Let me ask you this. What about gossip? What about gossip? Do you speak uncharitably about others? And maybe dress it up with a veneer of, you know, the Lord showed me something about that person and, you know, it's just, man. Cheered up with my wife and then, you know, I thought, man, I took the check my pastor. Then I told my small group leader and I was like, we all decided, yeah, that, that's, that's really messed up. That's really messed up. And you know what? Here's the thing. Your gossip may be accurate, but it's still gossip. And that means it's still sin. What if you made a decision, I will never ever say something uncharitably about anyone else again? Even a person you don't know, even a celebrity, can't stand the way she dresses. Like, what if I said that to your wife? I cannot stand the way your wife dresses, man. That's crazy. The things that we justify are crazy. We speak so impurely of others. The people that are the farthest from God are still image bearers of Yahweh. And Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. What about overeating? What? What? Oh, you're going to go there. Yes. Because the Bible says it's sin. Do you feel conviction from the Holy Spirit about overeating and gluttony? Do you? Some of y'all get mad at me sometimes because I, I bang on prosperity theology. I don't apologize. Prosperity theology is heretical. It is damaging to the faith. And just because somebody's on TV does not mean that they're right. And even though they sometimes say, say the sinner's prayer and all that kind of stuff, they say some right things does not account for all the wrong. And there's a lot of teaching out there in our culture that has made the Christian faith a resource for our lives to advance and be happy. This is why nobody ever does series on suffering, even though it's all over the Bible, the New Testament too. You don't need to hear prosperity theology. It's going to turn God into your servant. You don't need to hear that. Like I said, this is all low-hanging fruit. Let me ask you this. Do you have a value system by which you determine what music you listen to and what media you expose your eyes to? Or do you just watch what everybody else watches because it's on Netflix and everybody loves it? This is all low-hanging fruit. But I ask you a question that a person asked a group of friends recently. A friend of mine was telling Becky and I once, she said, I was with a group of friends and she said, I just asked them, are you convicted of your sins? She wasn't like trying to judge them or be mean to them, but like she said, just trying to challenge them. Like, are you convicted of your sins? Does, do you sense the Holy Spirit identifying sin in your life and saying, man, that's bad. Don't do that. That's what conviction of sins means. And when you are convicted of your sins... Do you respond in obedience? Do you? Are you convicted of your sins? And the last thing, and this all flows together. Third, Paul prays that we would overflow with right 
living. Every single true believer possesses a growing, supernatural yearning for beautiful goodness. You should be looking for that in your life. You should be looking for it. But it's not passive. It's not, oh, I hope God makes me a good person. It's lean into it, worship, obey, be convicted of your sins. Confess your sins one to another so that God will heal you. All these things the scriptures say, we need to lean into our faith. This is what Paul's addressing in this letter. How to overflow in fruitful living for God. And that our understanding of Christian maturity is that you and I can get through anything together because we love Jesus. And I'm willing to die and take on the identity of Jesus so that our relationship can survive and thrive. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your mercy. And I pray in Jesus' name that all of us would be convicted of our sins. I pray, Lord, that you would spawn in us, stir in us affections for you. Change us, oh God. Change us, oh God. Father, we need you in our lives. We need you. Let this prayer, Paul's prayer, happen. Would you answer this prayer, Lord, in our lives? Answer that prayer, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. My friends, as we always do, we uh, finish each of our gatherings by partaking of the Lord's Supper. And before you start getting busy, putting things away, thinking about kids, I want you to keep a worshipful poise And as you approach the Lord's table, do so in reverence and in worship. You may partake of the Lord's Supper.